I'm your host, Sean Neese, and the K is obviously silent. And anyway, on this show, I talk with people pursuing their creative and intellectual passions and living outside the box, providing a platform for opinions and perspectives not often heard in the mainstream media. And for this episode, I'm going to play you a conversation I had with Luke Yun, who is a poet, journalist, and just all-around writer in general. And he has quite an interesting story to tell, which he gets into in the interview. He is of indigenous descent, um, and he spent a majority, but he spent a majority of his childhood in Cambodia, growing up in Cambodia, and uh, because his parents traveled there, and he he gets into the reasons for that in uh, the interview. And he met his wife there, who was also she was from the United States as well. Uh, from Minnesota, and they they were both internationals living in Cambodia, and he he was there. He wrote a lot about the injustices going on there, not only from the Cambodian government, but also from some policies uh, the the U.S. was responsible for as well. And we also got into a lot of talks about politics in general and what's been going on with the protesting and. Uh, you know, it's a very political time, so we got into some of that and gotten some interesting back and forths. And, uh, you know, I'm a writer as well. I've written poetry and uh, short stories and articles, and that's uh, something we had in common. So we had a back and forth about what it's like being a writer nowadays. And uh, I, unfortunately, he didn't get to reading any of his poems. Uh, that's something I do a lot with poets when I interview them. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll post a li- all the links he sent me to his writing and everything else. And uh, he's been published in several poetry magazines. And his articles have been published on SoutheastAsiaGlobe.com and the Monthly Review. And his poems were published in the Black Mill Press and other publications. And I first got in contact with Luke because a long time ago I interviewed my friend Tom Bacallus, who's a poet that I've known since like my early years after high school, early college. Uh, he, he's in the punk scene and now he's he used to be in a punk band called Four Fingers and now he's, in, he's a writer and he does spoken word poetry. And I interviewed him for episode 89 and he's friends with Luke and they met through being writers in the writing community and Luke had been following me and my show since then so and I saw some of his posts and he seemed like an interesting guy to have on so I invited him on and it was a cool chat and here it is I hope you enjoy it you know uh Tom who I've interviewed too you're a, a writer I don't you like you, you do poetry and you're also you've written about what's going on in Cambodia what is it you do with that I did work as a journalist for a while, 
Um, a lot of it was more covering like political content, um, specifically sort of Khmer Rouge and then post Khmer Rouge. Um, cause I grew up around Cambodians my whole life. So yeah, it's just kind of been, it's been part of my life since I was born. Um, so I just gravitated towards that. So the right, the interest for writing's always been there. What, when did it start? Yeah, it's definitely always been there. Um, I come from a long line of um, professors and writers. And so the emphasis of books and academia and research has always kind of been there. And so um, as I became more politically aware and active, I think I just started writing more. So, so what, what, what uh, influences, like what do you write about like with your poetry? A lot of my poetry is kind of based on the inspiration of the little things, um, small, small things that are connected to something much larger that we might not always notice or pay attention to, um, or almost like the butterfly effect that a small thing has a huge consequence sometimes. And so those are things that I think about or I'm aware of. And then I try and write about, there's a lot of my poetry is very political and very angry. And I don't, um, I don't put a lot of that out there on social media. Um, a lot of that's just either for myself, close friends, or uh, for publication. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you share a lot of political stuff. So, like, what, what, where would you say your political beliefs are? I know you're more, I guess, on the left, or is that how you? I mean, personally, I, I wouldn't say left or right. Um, I would say I'm against both. That I would. I love that axiom is like the left and the right are both wings on the same bird. Um, so, I mean, I would say we need to destroy it all and pull it all down and just start <laughs> over. <laughs> but um, as far as like an ideology goes, I've been very heavily influenced um, with Marxist ideology. Um, that's an influence. I wouldn't say that's the driving ideology in me, but it's an influence for sure. I'm, a syndicalist? Do you know what syndicalism is? Anarcho, like anarcho-syndicalism? Like, like Emma Goldman, I guess, would be one of the main right. ones, or Kropotkin. So, yep. so how, how would you explain that exactly? It's like rejecting hierarchies, not only in government, and uh, abuse of authorities, not only in government, but also corporations as well? Is that right? I, yep, pretty much. I mean, you know that on the head. Um, so I, I come from... Uh, line of a long line of wobblies so the iww the industrial workers of the world um and so basically it's like any form of centralized authority is gonna be corrupted and gonna have a selfish interest at heart and so um the only way to overcome that is to form some kind of collective that has a bargaining power or has a means for basically seizing production as a collective instead of having top-down authority or management or CEOs. Um, I think it's becoming more apparent, especially as people see that the billionaire class, you know, I mean, they have more money than we can possibly even imagine. Um, and it's like, what, in the hands of 100 people or something? Yeah. Um, and that's just proof right there that we need syndicalism. We need, we need to restructure our society where we don't have individuals with $300 billion or a hundred billion dollars. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. So yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's a lot of people, I guess, I mean, I mean, you said you're against like the whole left-right paradigm, but there's like people on, I guess, that are more on the right that are always like complaining about like Marxists and stuff that say they're against um, like the centralized control too, or they're, yeah. or that they, they don't like this whole left-right paradigm. So that's why, you know, it's, I'm sure probably not a lot of people are used to hearing someone say that they're a Marxist and they're against. So like, it, what, what's, is, would you say there's a lot of misconceptions about what Marxism is? Definitely. I, I think because of the cold war and America's war on communism, there's been major misconceptions on what Marxism is. And because like the Soviet union wasn't Marxist, even though they claimed to be, and they studied Marx and whatnot, they, they were an authoritarian, like very centralized system, which, you know, different ideologies, claim that the Soviet Union was technically state capitalist because the state owned all industry and they were the hierarchy. They were the new class in power. Um, so, I mean, for me, like Marxism is a way to critique history and economics um, to apply it to a society is, I don't know. It's, it's hard to apply it to society just as it is. It has to adapt, change and take into consideration many different things. Um, one of the, especially for the U.S., interesting things of Marxism is like with the American Indian movement and different indigenous rights movements, there was almost like a, a pull, like, are we, are we pro-socialist, pro-communist, or are we against that because that requires industrialization? And so that was an interesting kind of ideological divide that happened in the 70s and 80s, which I think is worth considering, you know, do we want to look at an ideological system that requires an industrialized society or do we want to move away from that? But I mean, we are where we are, right? We are an industrialized yeah. society. Yeah. So kind of like, so like when you say moving away from like an industrialized society, would that mean like getting rid of uh, big business or like, like what about with like technology and stuff? Would that be put into like a different kind of system or? I mean, I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, there. That's why we have to talk to experts and get opinions. I mean, I don't, I don't have the answers. Really. Yeah. So I guess like you're more about like. Uh, so I guess uh, the way you look at it is like, like more like recognizing the problem first and then working together to find the solution. Yeah. Right. Right. Are you familiar with the philosopher Slavoj Žižek? Uh, I am not. Is that uh, okay? Um, I think he's Slovenian. Um, He's, he's very controversial because he's very inflammatory and he's not PC. Um, he calls himself a communist. I mean, he jokes about being a Stalinist, but he's not a Stalinist, but he jokes about it. Um, and he talks a lot about how it's not, necessarily, uh, the, it's not necessarily the prerogative for activism and those who want global change to talk about the changes that we can make, but rather to focus on the problems and the problems will create a solution for us. I don't entirely agree with that, but I think it's an interesting talking point. If we can start pointing out the problems, enough of us can come up with ideas to start focusing on that change. Yeah, um, like if we really educated ourselves on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I'm kind of skeptical. I mean, I, I was an educator for a long time, so I'm a little skeptical on mass education actually working enough to change our society. Um, unfortunately, it seems like 
historical changes come very quickly and with a massive event. I mean, like you have the American Revolution. It required violence, massive violence between people. You have the Bolshevik Revolution, which required a civil war and massive violence in their society. So I think, I think it helps to be educated, but humans, we, we really just respond to violence, which is sad. Yeah. And then the problem with violence, though, sometimes is you never know what group is going to take over. It could just be the most violent group right. that takes over, not necessarily the most moral group. So. Yep, that's true. Yeah, that's very true. And that's kind of what scares me with the U.S. right now is the most violent groups seem to lack an ideology, some any kind of organizational method, a collective organizational method, and it's just, well, it's almost just like rage. It's just a violence on its own, and that's scary because that's, I mean, if that if that achieves power, then all they know is violence. Yeah, that's why I, I was actually reading about the the Boogaloo movement, okay. which I thought was kind of which I thought was kind of interesting because it what like. There, there is an element, there is like the, like the, the racist types, but then there was also another element that was kind of siding with like the, like George, you know, the George Floyd protests and everything because they viewed the police and, and all that as tyrannical. So okay. then I know, and then I know some of them killed police officers and stuff, but, but they viewed it as like, oh, you know, this is the same fight because they were talking about like gun owners or like libertarian types that were killed by the police. So they, they just view it as like, there's going to be a second civil war. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I just finished um, a book. It's called proud boys and the white ethno state. I think I heard of that book. Yeah. Yeah. But that was an amazing insight on almost how they are the mainstream. Cause like the proud boys are very cl- like clean cut. They're very like physically fit. They endorse like traditional morality which is the husband and wife with the nuclear family. And all of that's very like classic 1950s America, right? So it's very appealing to many, many, many Americans. But, you know, there's all that undertone of that authoritarianism, that power structure. It's very like proto-fascist while not looking proto-fascist. I definitely understand the appeal. I see how it's appealing, but I mean... I think there's kind of a contrarian thing behind it too. Like maybe if somebody, cause it's a way to, cause, cause I guess the, the people who join that are thinking that, Oh, things are becoming more liberal now. So the way I can rebel is be more conservative, but really you're just kind of, they're just about bringing back the system that was there for hundreds of years. So it's not really any kind of counterculture like I right. think it is. Yeah. It's almost like revisionism. It's like a new, a new form of something that's always existed. But yeah. I think the, the thing that fascinates me about the Proud Boys is they are racially inclusive. So people of multiple, multiple racial backgrounds can be a Proud Boy, which is fascinating because that, that does yeah. show like a progressive liberal like starting point, right? Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, they have to endorse conservative values and Western society as like the pinnacle of civilization. Yeah, that's that's why they call themselves like Western chauvinists, that they think that the West is more about cultural superiority rather than racial superiority. Yeah. Yep. And for me, like growing up in Southeast Asia and seeing what Western culture and Western imperialism does, it's horrific. Like we're talking wholesale, like mass slaughter, destruction of religion, destruction of culture, 
food, everything. That's what happens when like Western culture comes into another culture and dominates it. It's just total destruction. Yeah. So was there like, what specific like historical events like were you there for? Because uh, I, I know the main thing that people know about is uh, under the Nixon administration, the bombing with Henry Kissinger and everything. Yeah. So uh, my family worked in refugee relocation from the civil wars in Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia in the 80s for refugees in California and Washington. And then we moved to Cambodia in 1992 when it had just opened up to the West. Um, it had been opened up open for Soviet and Soviet bloc aid um, throughout the 80s. But then in 92, they wrote a new constitution. They were like a democratic, supposedly democratic new country with elections coming up. So we moved there in 92, but the civil war was still going on. It was still an active civil war between pretty much three factions. Um, so it was very dangerous then. I mean, there were shootings. We could hear gunfire in the city every night, grenades. Um, we couldn't leave the city on certain roads. Um, there were routine robberies and murders and assassinations. And so that pretty much was a part of life um, until they signed the, I think the Paris peace agreements or the one of the Paris peace agreements was in 93. So that was a year after. And that's when the UN started arriving and they kind of enforced a peace between the different factions. So they, they, basically were a buffer zone between them so they couldn't fight each other. Um, yeah, so that was kind of what it was like when we first moved there. And then the ruling party, which still rules, had a minor civil war in 97. And we, it was mostly took place in the capital city um, where the two factions fought for three days. And it was weird because our house was in the epicenter of the fighting. And we had to flee to the riverfront and rockets were falling into the river and I mean, there were tanks rolling into the city um, and it was a full on war. It was just a three day long war. And that small war pretty much allowed the, the main ruling party to slaughter the opposition, like physically slaughter the opposition and finalize control of the military and everything to keep their power, which they maintain to this day. Um, so... Yeah, it's kind of a long, complicated history for this small little country, but I mean, yeah. and did that did that change you at all? Did that influence you as an artist, like being around war and all that? Must have had an impact on you. I think I think it did in some ways, maybe ways I can't um, define. I think it it definitely, as a young person, it woke me up to sort of the brutality of conflict and war. Um, I mean, seeing dead bodies and people that had been gunned down and tanks burning and those kind of things aren't normal for people to see. But yeah. when you see them as a young person and as a kid, they are normal because it's life and it's, you just move on from it. But I think when you look back on it and you're like, okay, seeing a bunch of dead soldiers around a burnt out tank is not something most people experience. So that is odd and strange. But at the time it was... It wasn't odd and strange. It was just that feeling of fear of like, I need to be safe. And that's, it's like primal almost. You're just like, this is reality, but I need to try and be safe. 
So I so. guess in some ways it can kind of like there could be some trauma with that, but it can also kind of, I guess, strengthen you in some ways because it can prepare you for like life in the ways that maybe other people aren't prepared, like the hard parts of life. And it can also help you not take things for granted as much because I like, and maybe some of the spiritual stuff. Cause I know, I noticed kind of like a, like you talked about appreciating the mundane and like mm-hmm. almost kind of like a mystical thing by because like i know you wrote about like the cactus there was one poem i wrote where you wrote about like the cactus oh yeah like nature yeah 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 Yeah, i definitely i mean it's funny because it is a paradox to be a a dialectical materialist but have influences in the mystical right it's like a juxtaposition but i think that's almost the beauty of being human is paradox right so i definitely have like spiritual mystical thinking and leanings but I, I am very much a realist at the same time. Um, but yeah, I think certain forms of trauma harden you and they almost push you into like almost a more mystical way of living. Otherwise you just get too angry. And I remember like as a teenager and a young man, just being really angry. Like there was a lot of anger. There was a lot going on in the world that was just shit. And it was just making me really angry. And I thought, I don't want to live like, with this rage on me. So I, I started to practice and learn about a lot of Zen and that kind of like realigned my, me into myself. Um, it's a hard thing to practice. And I mean, it's, it's not perfect either, but I think it helps restructure your mind. So you, you aren't feeding that rage and anger. Yeah. Cause you're not as, it's about detaching yourself from your thoughts. I think a lot of people think it means not thinking. Right. But from my, from what I've learned, it's it's more about letting the thoughts come and go, but like realizing those thoughts aren't you. Right. And if you're using it to like deal with any kind of depression or anxiety, like the feeling just comes up, or like the worry just comes up, but it's like, oh, hey, worry, and you can kind of view that as separate from you. It's not you. It's just yeah. like this other thing coming in. Yep. Yep. True. And I think I think a lot of us internalize what's happening in the world as well as if, as if it's happening to us or as if we can affect change in it, but we can't. I mean, the fact that like Starbucks exploits workers in Ethiopia and is responsible for like the destruction of the Ethiopian coffee industry in the two thousands, there's nothing I can do about that. But if I think about that too long, you just get angry and angry and angrier. It's like, well, if you pull back from that and you realize there are other things you can do, it's like restructuring how you think about it and how you go about it. Um, it's interesting in moving back to the U S so many Americans I meet almost don't, they don't, they're not mindful. They're not like, yeah, I don't know. They're not constructively thinking about what they can do actively. It's almost like too abstract and big picture. Um, yeah. And maybe it's because they're too, they're not, a lot of them aren't directly affected by a lot of it, so it's not part of their right. daily life. Yeah. Yeah. And Americans are very, at least in my experience, very, um, what's the word? They just respond to something very quickly. Like they'll see something, they'll donate lots of money, but then in five months' time, it's forgotten. So it's very, um, oh, what's the word? It's not spontaneous. It's like, um, What's the word I'm looking They're like for? temporary, I guess? Or? Yeah, it's kind of like a fleeting um, thing. You can 
we can really get some momentum going for a few weeks, but then it just kind of peters out as we get distracted and move on. Um, and I think it's a very distinctly American thing. In yeah, a lot like of- whatever's trending at the time, like, oh, this is a trendy issue. Right. Like, so I'll yep. care about that. Yeah. yeah. And like you said, it's so much stuff. So it's like hard to, yeah. 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 And you, and you mentioned the, like the native American movements. I, I know, I think you wrote about that. You have like, the, that's your background, like indigenous, I don't know, first nations, I think you said. So that's, uh, yeah. That's um, that's kind of like contextual. If it's Canadians, they think of, they think of us as first nations. Um, for me and how I've reconnected with our indigenous past and culture is if it's, uh, slightly politicized and and it's deeper in terms of understanding who we are. It's indigenous, but I mean when we when we hang out with each other, it's usually just like natives. It's like we're all natives, um, or it's specific as to what what we are. If it's like Blackfoot or Anishinaabe or that kind of thing, um, yeah. So, and what was your tribe? Uh, uh, it's kind of a little hard to pinpoint because a lot of it got whitewashed literally in my great grandparents generation stuff, trying to assimilate and be white. Um, I know that my mother comes from an Ojibwe background from Canada. Um, my father we think is probably Cherokee. Um, that makes the most sense from, we all come from Oklahoma and the part of Oklahoma we come from, but that's not, confirmed like that's not there's this kind of a a void in our past that kind of starts with our great-grandparents um and that was really prevalent um in that generation to hide to literally hide ancestry to be fearful about it and to try and be white to pretend to be white to assimilate into society to get jobs to to do all that but my great-grandfather was always called blackie because he was so dark of complexion and um, he just stood out as looking very different than white people. Um, so, yeah. So, but a big inspiration for me reconnecting with my indigenous roots and past um, comes from my great aunt who's Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Um, and she's a very incredible uh, activist, thinker, writer, historian. She was a professor for a long time. Um, in her book, The Indigenous People's History of the United States, is almost a must-read for all Americans. Um, so she's been very instrumental in like helping reconnect me to indigenous roots and the idea of who we are. And because I have a disconnect to what nation we did come from, I think I'm more of like a pan, pan-indigenous thinker, um, where... I'm disconnected from my roots, which is horrible, and the language, we lost our language. And so all I have left is I know I'm an indigenous person, so I have to support and fight for indigenous rights um, because otherwise it's all going away. Um, and to growing up mainly in Cambodia, kind of, did that make you feel more disconnected from your roots? I think, I think definitely, especially because my parents both would joke about having indigenous roots but not, not knowing much about it. And it was like, oh, yeah, well, that's what we are, but we're Americans. And then growing up in Cambodia and then in Asian communities and growing up speaking Cambodian and Vietnamese. I don't speak Vietnamese anymore. 
it was like weird. It was like, I don't know what, what I am really. Cause like, especially in Cambodian culture, you're not accepted. I mean, they're very racial. Um, if you're not a Cambodian, they don't like you like deep, deep down inside. And in terms are, of, are they more racist towards other groups? Oh yeah. In some groups than other groups? Or? Very, very much so. I mean, deep, animosity towards the Vietnamese that goes way it's illogical irrational and it goes way back and I think there's this deep mistrust of foreigners so there's many amazing Cambodian individuals that are wonderful lovely people but their society is incredibly racist and hateful Mm -hmm. Um, I mean throughout even modern Cambodian history there's been small-scale genocides that they've done to other minority groups. Um, there was like a really horrific one in 1970 where the Lanol government at that time was a U.S. puppet and they were angry at Vietnam for overstepping into their borders. So they went to this settlement across the river from Phnom Penh, the capital, and they slaughtered like 400 men, women, and children for no reason that were of Vietnamese background, but they had for generations lived in Cambodia. So it's that thinking that like, you're never going to be welcome here. Like you are always an outsider, like very tribalistic almost. Um, So yeah. So growing up with that and then feeling like an outsider there and then not having solid connection to our indigenous roots. I mean, I, I was born in Washington state raised between Cambodia and Washington. So like, I've never even been to Oklahoma. Um, so it's like very yeah. disconnected. And now the percentage of that is, uh, home was given to the, is considered native land now. And I saw that recently. Yeah. Which is a fascinating turn of events because if that starts being applied nationally, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean one of the clearest examples is Mount Rushmore. I mean, sh- should the grandfathers be turned back into a mountain this yeah. monument that was carved into sacred, like sacred mountains for the Lakota. I mean, from the Lakota perspective, the Lakotan and like the the Plains nations up there, those faces should never be in that mountain. Yeah. So if you start blowing those up though, can you imagine like the repercussions? I mean, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Cause a lot, a lot of people like that it'd be good for them, but then there'd be like a lot of conflict, like, like Americans that don't agree with that or like, they're like, Oh no, this is, you know, this is American, uh, you know, so. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. True. And a lot of people didn't know. I didn't, I didn't even know. Like a lot of people didn't know like the history of like Mount Rushmore. I think till, till recently, I think that that with the protests and everything, a lot of the history about like all these like uh, monuments we thought were like American monuments were actually like native like historically yeah. Native American uh, sites that we, we turned into. Our... Yeah, yeah, true. And even the, I can't remember the architect's name who, who was behind the Mount Rushmore project, started the Crazy Horse one, right? Yeah. And the, I think the face is done so far of, of what he thinks Crazy Horse looks like. And like, that's, that's so ridiculously insensitive because... Like, first of all, Crazy Horse was known to not want his picture taken. Like, he very much believed that was a evil, 
like white man magic thing. Um, so then you're going to do this, the sacred mountain is going to be carved in his image. Like that's so beyond disrespectful. Yeah. It's almost like incitement. It's almost like we think you're shit and we're going to make fun of you by pretending we're doing this really cool, huge monument to you. So it's like, that is so preposterously insensitive and it's hard to make people realize that. Yeah. And then well, that, and, and the guy who did it was uh, like a member of the KKK. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he like vocalized his support for like the KKK and what is now known as white nationalism. Um, so, I mean, but the thing about a lot of that, the white nationalist thinking is this weird kind of quasi respect this idealization of the noble savage, right? Of like, there was this great past, these great people who, who had a culture and fought and, and all this stuff. And it's just, it's all fake pretty much. It's all just like this weird narrative where they use indigenous like history and rights almost as like a starting point for their own. It's strange. Have you seen the American flag with the native on it? I, I don't think I have. I, I've seen things like the white nationalist types like trying to compare in themselves like, oh, you thought it was wrong when we did this to the Native Americans, so so why do you think it's okay when the whites are being replaced and everything? I've seen that argument. But yeah. yeah. Yep. Or the, they use that argument for disarmament as well, of like, this is what happens when you take guns away. And it's like, well, yeah, it wasn't quite like that back then. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Do you, th do you think they should be uh, like selected with which, like I, I can understand, like, of course, like, taking down Columbus, taking down Confederate statues. But like, I know they also like took down an abolitionist statue. I feel like maybe it should be more like selective, which, what, what do you think? Um, my thinking on the statues has gotten me in trouble, um, especially with members of my family that are very radical. Um, I, support, I support the outward anger to bring down these statues, to deface them, to make fun of them, to learn the history of them, and to dethrone them. But to me, the system itself, this is an outward product of the system itself. And if we remove the outward images of the system itself, we almost lose a visual focal point for what they're still doing and what they still stand for. So like the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue, you know, in Richmond, it's good in a sense that it's a focal point for anger. It's, it represents something to a lot of people, which is really negative. You know, I mean, Robert E. Lee as a person is very different than what he's been turned into and what yeah. he like is an example of, you know, you got, the white supremacists, the white nationalists, the proud boys and all that who use these symbols in this. So yes, that needs to be mocked and made fun of and removed, but it doesn't change the fact that the system is still in place that let that, that statue be put up for what? 140. Well, I think that statue was probably in the twenties, wasn't it? Yeah. So th probably like, so, yeah. like a hundred years, 80 to a hundred years. Um, so, so it's like, like it should be focused more on changing the laws and like making a better system rather than removing the statues right, of the past. Right. Yeah. And I think once we, once we do that, then we can remove the statues. We can yeah. create a historical park of these statues for context of what they are. We can melt them down. Like, I don't care. But it's like, 
I don't know, when I was in uh, Moscow, one of the fascinating things is there's a statue park in Moscow. And you can wander around there and there's statues of Stalin and there's statues of Lenin and Jerzynski and like all these different Soviet icons. And you can go to see them in this statue park. But in that statue park, it's very much like this is the past. Like this is, this is old history and we don't know what to do with them. So you can go look at them here. And it was very sad in terms of like, it was almost like, I don't know, like an abandonment. We don't know what to do with these. So this is, this is all we can do. But at the same time, it's like, that makes sense. Like we need, we still need museums and we still need recognition that we have a history and a past. Um, for me, like the taking down the statue of like the Confederate soldier for the Confederate war dead doesn't make sense because it was a real war. They were Americans. They died. They Some were of them were too poor to own slaves. Like not, all, not every one of them was like, right. I mean, slave, but yeah. your common soldier was fighting for homeland and was fighting for family and farm. Very poor North and South. They were working class members used by a hierarchy of yeah. wealthy industrialists or landowners in the South to kill each other. So it's like, we shouldn't be attacking them. I mean, maybe, maybe they're a symbol that represents something, but at the same time, that that's American history. I mean, do we start digging up battlefields? I mean, you know, where, where do we go in this? I, like I said, I understand the rage. My thinking on the statues has gotten me in trouble. Yeah. But for me personally, a statue of Thomas Jefferson and a statue of Robert E. Lee are very similar in terms of what they represent. Um, so to pick one over the other, it's kind of weird. Um, I mean, I understand Thomas Jefferson's founding father, institution to American democracy, a brilliant thinker. But at the same time, I mean, yeah. he raped his slave, Sally, right? And he, yeah. he hated natives. So it's like, which, which history are we going to choose here? Um, and, I th and I think Ben Franklin was actually, this, this is a talk about battle, but I think Ben Franklin was actually like one of the few abolitionists. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. And that, it's the same with Abraham Lincoln because, yeah, he, you know, he passed the Emancipation Proclamation and everything, but he also, I know he slaughtered a lot of uh, Native America, and I forget what the exact incident was. Yeah. Well, he signed off on the famous hanging in Mankato here in Minnesota where oh, like, I think it was 68. I could be wrong. I don't want to, don't quote me on that. Um, native elders and leaders were hung or hanged. They should be hanged. Right. Um, basically to quell the Sioux rebellion that was happening here. And these elders and leaders and medicine men had nothing to do with the larger conflict that was going on. It was literally just an example to stifle the insurgency and the dissent and be like, look at what we can do to your people. And that was Abraham Lincoln. He personally like signed off on that. And I think that's like a dirty part of history that we like the civil war is not a black and white issue. And that I, th I see that as a trend of we're almost, we're almost turning it into a black and white good versus evil yeah, that's another thing I was thinking, like, sh should we really be thinking, like, in terms of, like, we're going to make a statue of this person, he's like an idol, or should we look at people historically as, like, the flawed, complex people they were, rather than, like, 
oh, this person was a hero. I mean, maybe there's some people that were more good than others. I mean, you know, it, it's okay to celebrate because like the good they did outweighs the bad. Yeah. But, but then other people maybe look at them more as the flaw, sort of great people they were, especially right. like hundreds of years ago. Like when, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Because I mean, different moral systems were in place. Um, different aspects of religious morality were in place. So like, yeah, you're right. Like to judge from our modern perspective now on something back then, it can be tricky. It's, it's not, it's not so clear cut as it, as we want it to be. Yeah. Cause um, I know people even want to take down statues of Gandhi because of some of the stuff he said about vaccines. And I know he said he made some racist comments and some sexist comments too, yeah. but should, should that, does that, I mean that, and that was bad, but does that mean like his whole message of nonviolent resistance shouldn't be appreciated too? Right. Right. Or, or, or MLK, you know, I mean, phenomenal civil rights leader, yeah. like um, amazing preacher order, but in his personal life, very flawed individual, you know, multiple affairs, very hurtful to his wife. Not, not physically. I don't know if he ever like mm. beat her or anything really. Yeah, I think nasty. he just had affairs. But, but, yeah. yeah. But like that's that in terms of the way their marriage was, that's very psychologically damaging to her. And it's a, bre- a breach of trust to how their marriage was constructed. So like that shows he's personally a very flawed individual, but his thinking and his ability to communicate to people is phenomenal. So I think we have to, we have to weigh both. We have to look at both and not, not put these people on these holy pedestals. Well, rather than looking at great individuals, maybe think of great deeds that people have accomplished. Like people, people who've accomplished, who've done great things have also done could also have done bad things. So it's right. more like rather than looking at people as, oh, this was a good person or this was a bad person, look at their actions and like how, how much good did they do and how much bad, like does the good outweigh the bad or... Yeah. Yeah. Like something else is going on. So I think there are impressions left behind um, in those kind of things. So I know you also, and you also sent me an article about like uh, some other woman that you, there was a woman that you met that, was also, she was from America and she was in Cambodia and then you, you fell in love when you were young. And then, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's my wife, Laura Lee. Um, yeah, so, yeah, there was, we an article was done on us um, a few years ago. Um, it's kind of a, from their perspective, it was kind of a fun, kind of sweet, young sweetheart story growing up together and all this stuff. Um, we did meet when we were five, for the first time, but then many years separated us. Um, and then we reconnected in high school and just a lot of shared experience and growing up in Cambodia is a unique thing. I think meeting somebody else with those shared experiences really let us connect on a much deeper level. Um, and so, I mean, the rest is history. We've been married for 13 years now. Um, but she's from originally her family's from Minnesota and St. Cloud. So that's why we live, live here currently. Um, yeah. So um, that's, that's that. In Minnesota with uh, Jesse Ventura. He's also, yep. He always talks about that. He's from Minnesota. Yep. <laughs> and in the rural communities, that's how people talk. Oh, really? Like, they, they, they all talk like Jesse? 
Pentorca. <laughs> they do. I mean, there's certain rural yeah. communities where you're like, wow, this is, this is barely English, guys. This is something else. <laughs> there's a lot of, um, like, cultural differences between how I was raised on the West Coast and the West Coast culture, um, Dust Bowl immigrants and all that, you know, to Minnesota, which is very kind of Scandinavian and German. Um, there's been a lot of weird, weird things to adjust to. Like Minnesotans are incredibly passive aggressive. <laughs> um, and they're really nice. Oh, it's fantastic. Super nice. But then when you try and get deeper with a lot of Minnesotans, this passive aggressiveness comes out of like, like you can't, you can't talk to me as if you know something even if that's not what you're trying to do, that aggressiveness comes out in a very passive way. And it's made it kind of hard to deal with because I'm a fairly direct person and navigating that world of the passive aggressiveness of like expectations that are put on you by like my wife's family and whatnot that don't get met. And then you're gossiped about. It's very strange. And, like, um, and then, they're, then they're mad at you and you don't quite know why right. or there's some kind of feud and you don't know why. Exactly. Yep, exactly, exactly. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a different world. Um, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of contradictions. Um, I don't know. It's not quite what I expected in moving here. So. How has it changed? Like as far as being a writer, different places, did you ever do like spoken word? Uh, is there like a lot of writers in Minnesota? Did you meet other writers in Cambodia and other places? Uh, yeah, I met a lot of writers in Cambodia. Um, I was part of a writer's workshop in Cambodia um, for years. We would meet together, um, critique each other's writing, help each other get published. Um, we would read novels, books, writing. We would perform to each other. Um, there were different literary events. Um, spoken word is not really my, uh, it doesn't interest me as much. I very much appreciate it in other people. Uh, a good friend of mine, or a friend of mine, uh, Kosal Kao is an amazing, like, spoken word poet. Um, in, he lives in Cambodia. He's a deportee um, where, you know about the deportees where the U.S. had a program. Oh, deporting, could, deporting Cambodians? Or it's, it? Well, they deport anybody now. Um, they did thousands of Cambodians or thousands of Americans who are of Cambodian heritage and background um, oh. because they never got citizenship. So when their families moved here with them, they were like one or two years old. And, you know, for whatever circumstances, they didn't formalize the citizenship. So then they committed, I think, a felony of some kind. And when the law came into place, I think under who's Bush, might have been Bush or Obama, they started deporting um, these individuals from American prisons back to their countries. And they're doing it all over the world. I mean, Tonga is, is seeing a lot of this. A lot of um, Americans of Tonganese background are getting deported back to Tonga and Cambodia. I mean, it's all over the world. Anyway, my friend Kosal Kao is a spoken word poet who is deported back to Cambodia. Um, and like, I really appreciate what he does and how he writes and how he performs. His incredible artistry and just very poetic, very, like, very skilled. Um, so I appreciate it. But like, for me, I, I'm not so comfortable doing spoken word. I've done readings. I've, I've performed at places, 
but in terms of like the more specific like spoken word style it's not something that interests me personally um that much um, yeah i mean I, i've done it a couple of times i enjoyed it when i did it but i don't know if it's something i do regularly especially like a, an open mic like if you wrote if you wrote like a very serious um spoken word and then a comedian comes right after you and then just kind of like rips right. it apart everything he just said is kind of like uh, i don't know so <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's something I yeah. would do like regularly. So, now, have you done readings and stuff at other other um, places? I, I, did, I did like the spoken word a couple times. I, I haven't done much uh, readings. What, would you recommend it, like as readings like a different kind of experience than a open mic? Yeah, it can be. It can be good, especially if you're trying out a new piece and you have an audience that might be receptive to it. Sometimes they're not. Um, it's a for me anyway. The few times that I've done it recently it's a good way to see how it's received and it's almost like a self-edit like oh shit like i'm going to cut that out or this can be changed um which i mean you should probably do at home first but when you do it publicly you can feel a response in the audience you can hear how your words kind of are almost echoing off of the people there it's a good experience it's a i think it's something more people should try um reciting or performing your poems, which is great too. But usually that's, that requires a different energy, a different emotion. Um, yeah. Cause you have to make the way you say it kind of the performance too. It's not just the poetry. Yeah. Yep. So, and one of my closest friends in the world um, who I've known for a long time, uh, his name's James Christie. Uh, he's a phenomenal like poet and he can memorize things incredibly rapidly and so if he, if he performs, which is rare, it is almost like spoken word because he's so good at memorization that he can do it. I'm envious of that <laughs> ability to write something, memorize it, and then like perform it as like a spoken word piece, like so seamlessly. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I, well, I've done like a lot of, yeah, I guess it's kind of similar to acting in a way. Like, and I, 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 like I'm an actor too, so mate, but, uh, I don't know. So, so like, I guess it kind of came out of it when I did the spoken word that one time, but mm -hmm. yeah. Do you have any techniques for memorizing your lines? Uh, I just like, read, I, I don't know. Like I just read it over a bunch of times. I've always had a, a, a good memory. Like sometimes I'll remember conversations like full or like something that happened years ago that nobody else remembers. Okay. So I, I just kind of, I don't know. I just easily, it comes natural to me like a photographic kind of memory. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Huh. What, about, what about you? Do you do you have like a way you memorize things? Or? I usually have to write things down. Um, once it's written down, it's it's I can memorize it much easier. Um, I don't know because I read so much. I think a lot of that comes. I need to like reread what I've written as well. Um, that's just kind of how I do it. Just a lot of writing. Uh, I for years I've tried to do the Jack Kerouac method of like always having a notebook or journal with you and just write just like some of it's just total crap. Some of it's great. You can pick your gems out. Sometimes it's just almost a way to flesh out an idea. Um, so I usually bring a notebook with me more recently. It's a lot on my phone cause that's very convenient. So uh, like, what do you have planned next with your writing? I know you've, you've published some poems. Is it, where would you like to go in the future with it? Um, I've been working for a while on a collection of stories that are like a memoir 
of my childhood. Um, I was asked to write that many years ago and I started writing it and it kind of fell a little short of what I wanted it to be back then. So I'm rebooting that. Um, and so I want, I want that to get finished and it would really nice to be have, have that published. Um, more for family and friends and my children to see kind of what I experienced and some of the weird, weird things of life. Um, when you're thrown into a completely alien culture that's in civil war and in chaos and, and it's just normal life. Um, so that's, that's a project, a more longer term project I've been doing. Um, I would like um, to have some poetry chapbooks published I'm constantly sending material out, but I think that's the fate of every writer, right? Is just this endless stream of rejection uh, letters and emails. Um, so I, I don't have any plans for anything larger like a novel or anything like that um, yet. I just have nothing, no desire. Um, I think it'll come. There'll be a desire at some point, but not, not at the moment. Um, there are some like more longer poetic pieces that I've been working on for a while. Um, one of the ones I don't want to give it away because somebody might steal my idea, <laughs> but, but so those are like some, some of the things that I work on pretty regularly. Um, I try and write every day. Well, I do write every day, but I try and create something that I'm happy with in a finalized form every day, at least something either like a flash fiction or a poem or two. Um, that's just my own personal driving force. Something consistent I can hold on to. And it's, and it's always, so you always find like, you never find like you, there's a day where you don't have inspiration or it's, it just doesn't like are other days. Are you more inspired than others? There's definitely days when I'm more inspired than others. I mean, there's, there's days when there's just nothing and, whatever I write, I just hate, or it's just not, it just doesn't feel right. Um, but, but like, I think part of that for me is also trying to get back to that Zen mindset of like, I might not see this as having any worth or value in right now, but in a week's time, I might look back on that sentence or that phrase or whatever and be like, okay, that means something or that has something I can use in it. But what do you, what do you think about sort of modern America's trend away from reading and books? Do you think, you think that's harming the future of writers? Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, the whole like short, short, short attention span thing too. Like people like don't like things for more nuanced. They want more quick, um, like quick kind of things that are just summed up instantly. Yeah. I, I think, I think definitely, um, but maybe like audiobooks, people like read audio or iBooks are kind of helping it make a bit of a comeback and maybe the quarantine, maybe people having more time on their hands. Hopefully that's gotten more people to read a bit, but um, I don't know. I, I mean, unfortunately I think, Maybe that is hurting writers a bit. What's been your experience? Has it been hard to like reach more people? I think I think it has. Um, coming coming from uh, society and culture in Cambodia, where you know I was in a writers group and I 
I had lots of connections. And then to here, where I didn't know anybody, I discovered that a lot of people didn't have any reference for the books I would talk about or the books I would like reference or make a joke from. There would just be this blank blankness. I'd be like, well, okay, that's, that's a pretty big book. Like if you don't, I don't know, to me, if you don't know like what Lord of the Flies is, what else, what else are you missing? Like, sure. I mean, some people haven't read Lord of the Flies. That's fine. But like, it's almost a, a clue. Okay, wait. So there's no, there's no response or recognition of what that is. So, okay, wait, have you read 1984? No. Okay. It's like, oh, wait, there's a lot missing here that I think we've lost. I don't know that like American society has moved away from, which is so, so sad to me. Um, because we have amazing thinkers and writers. You have been listening to BSing with Sean K on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am your host, Sean Neese, and that was my conversation with Luke Yun, who's a poet and journalist. And by the way, if you like listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and you're on the go and you don't want to just sit at your computer and listen please consider downloading our Radio Free Brooklyn mobile app from either the iPhone, the Apple store for the iPhone, or the App Store for Google. And while you're at it, subscribe to our newsletter. We also, you know, like everybody, were hit by COVID, so if you want to donate, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. And there's also a way to donate for from your phone. You you text uh, RFB give five. That's the number five to four four three two one. And if you shop on Amazon, you can also go to Amazon.com/smile and register Radio Free Brooklyn as the nonprofit you wish to support. When you do, a percentage of your sales will go to RFB, and it will cost you nothing. Thank you for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Your support keeps the station going. And thank you for listening to BSA with Sean K. at Radio Free Brooklyn. I'll be here Mondays, 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. Uh, every week. You can also find me on Spotify and iTunes and everything else. And that's about it for this week's episode. I will catch you on the next one. BSing with Sean K.